I always felt like I wasn't gay enough for the gay spaces and I wasn't straight enough for the straight spaces. And that was just kind of another way that I didn't fit in. Hello, my name's Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they made whilst they were there, and the people that they used to know. So, you know how sometimes you go into a space and you instantly just feel like you are home. Like there is none of that awkwardness whilst you get your bearings. Everyone is friendly and open and you just feel totally comfortable. And you know how when you find those places, you want to make sure that you go back time and time again and soak up as many good vibes as you can. Right? Right? Well, not so much for this week's guest, the award-winning writer Marley Jane Ward, who went to Sydney's Club Kooky only the once after being taken there when she first moved to the city way back in 2001. But then she never went back. And why did she never go back? Well, you'll have to listen to the whole episode to find out. We talk all about learning how to be unapologetically yourself, running away from home without a plan, which is kind of the best way of running away from home, right? And Y2K fashions. Amazing. Let's get into it. went to Cookie the once but it was such a um not even transformative but just uh like an almost helpful experience in my life at the time if that makes sense so helpful but not transformative no because I didn't transform afterwards I could have I didn't okay Um, so this is semantics here is it only transformative mm. if the transformation happens immediately hmm Maybe, but maybe not. At the time, I wasn't extremely self-aware, so there could have been some level of transformation that I didn't pick up on. And so at the moment, you're extremely self-aware? <laughs> I'm a lot more self-aware than I was. <laughs> oh, okay, but you're not like hyper self-aware because that just gets really painful. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I can be a bit too self-aware and it does get really painful, yes. Ooh, yeah, yeah, you don't want to go down that path. <laughs> Okay, so helpful. How was it helpful? So I feel like going to a place that was full of weirdos Mm -hmm. was actually really good for me because I've always felt very weird and very like I didn't fit in, Mm -hmm. as a lot of people do. Um, And so going to a club and being in that environment where everyone was weird and that was an asset and... It was kind of celebrated. It was really good for me. So then let's back up. When was this? So this was 2001. <gasps> Ooh, magical year. 
What a time to be alive. (laughs) It was the first week that I'd lived out of home that my flatmate took me along to this club. So I'd moved from not necessarily a like a rural area or anything like that, but it was a more regional area Mm -hmm. um, to the big city. And it was the first week that I was there. My flatmate took me to Club Kooky one Thursday night. And so why had you moved? So it's a funny story how I moved out of home. Everything that I do always, it's not necessarily disastrous, but like (laughs) I never do things the easy way. So when I was 18, I left home with $50 and a bag. I was just like, I'm out of here. Um, I didn't get along with my mom at the time and I didn't have a job and I was sort of getting really into drugs at the time. And so I just decided one day I had a friend who offered me to sleep on their, the floor of their bedroom until I found a place of my own. And so I just skedaddled. I just got out of there, got a lift with a friend to Sydney, which was about four or five hours away. Mm-hmm. and rocked up in Newtown, which is a suburb uh, in the city of Sydney that had a reputation for being a really queer area. And I'd always wanted to live there since I was since I was 12 years old and I saw a drag queen in full regalia walking down the street at like 11 in the morning. <laughs> I was like, this is where I want to live. On the way to somewhere or on the way home? Look, I don't know. I was 13, so 12 or 13, so... Didn't ask questions. I I didn't think... (laughs) Yeah, didn't ask questions. I was just just shell-shocked, but in a good way. Uh, So I'd always wanted to move to Newtown. It was the dream, and so I was really excited at the prospect of getting to live my dream Mm. of living in Newtown. And so how long were you on the floor before you found a flat? I stayed with my friend for a week, Uh And I managed to find a share house. I didn't have the money for my rental bond, but they let me move in. They gave me a week to get my my bond together. Um, And so to get my bond, I booked a a photo shoot to pose for like a men's magazine. So I, I felt very grown up, like I was sorting out my own issues and taking care of myself. (laughs) <laughs> so when I moved into the share house, I didn't have anything. I slept on the ground, on the floor of my bedroom, on a blanket with another blanket on top of me. But I was very excited to be there. Yeah. Um, my two flatmates were older than me and one of them was a very tall, like six foot five plus Greek crossdresser who was the one who ended up taking me to Club Kooky for the uh, first time. So then this running away, like, I mean, you didn't quite say running away, but like, you know, making a decision kind of about your away. future that was impulsive and away from the thing and you got there by running. Was <laughs> we able to talk about your relationship with your mum? And, and yeah. What was so happening? living in a smaller area, mm. it was really hard for me to find a job. So that was extremely stressful, not having work. And then living with my mum, we had a lot of problems. Um, She had an undiagnosed mental illness. And so things were really just, it wasn't a nice time or place to be. And so I feel like I, I was getting quietly desperate to just do anything. Mm -hmm. I'd been accepted into university, but 
because I wasn't employed and my mum and I sort of were low income, I couldn't go. Um, I didn't have the money to move and start uni. So I was, I was kind of like heartbroken by that mm. and living with my mum, who I didn't get along with, no work, being heartbroken. I just felt like there was nothing for me yeah. where I was and sort of facing down this black hole of being stuck. And so when the friend offered me the space on her bedroom floor, I was like, oh, this is great. This is something that I can do. Like, mm. this is anything. <laughs> and so I jumped at the chance. And how did your queerness inform the way you were feeling in that smaller town? I've always thought that being, like, queer Yeah. Oh, is... inverted commas, by the way, listeners. Yeah. Quick, quick. Um, it's just as much about being fucking odd on this planet as mm-hmm. well as sexuality. So it's not a Venn diagram, it's a direct overlap. Is that what you're saying? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I never particularly felt like I belonged. And there, I guess there are a lot of reasons for that, but my queerness was definitely a part of that. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it didn't directly play into sort of my desire to get out but it was definitely like a filter over that, like a colour yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. added to the colours of my despair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is there more than one colour than grey when you're talking about despair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. There's lots the of shades, shades of grey. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. And so yeah. what was, Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is me assuming there was, what was the plan when you got to Sydney? Like, who were you going to be? What were you going to become? Plan? <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry. That's my question. <laughs> uh, the period that this all takes place in, I was very sick. I was very mentally ill. Uh-huh. So there was no plan. There was only a constant present yeah. of now and now and now and now. And so... I didn't need a plan. Mm-hmm. I just needed action. And yeah. um, that action involved just getting the fuck out. And I didn't really think about anything beyond that. You know, when I got to Sydney, I was like, well, now I'm going to need some money. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I'm not known for my forethought. I, I live in a constant present, kind of like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Have you said that on your dating profiles? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think it endears me to anybody. <laughs> um, moving into this flat and then having a base, do you remember how that felt? It felt like things had finally begun. Mm-hmm. Like this was the place where I could finally become myself. Mm-hmm. It was a house full of weirdos and I thought, well, this is perfect. Um, It was a house full of artists and creative types and it was just the sort of bohemian, wacky existence that I always thought I deserved. I like that choice of word. Yeah, and I was very excited to begin. And so near the beginning was Club Kooky and your six-foot-five-ish flatmate. Hmm. So tell me about... You're six foot five-ish flatmate first. So I am not sure of their gender identity. At the time they went by he, him. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's changed. This is 21 years ago now. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll refer to them as them. Mm-hmm. But they were a very large physical presence 
that had like an awesome clash with the dresses and skirts that they wore. So I obviously found them just completely and utterly rad and fascinating and exciting. And they were just like so unapologetic about who they were. And I admired that so much because I'd always stuck out and not fit in, but I felt very apologetic about that fact. Mm -hmm. Whereas my flatmate was very proudly and openly themselves. And I, I wanted a piece of that. Yeah. I'm always really envious, maybe that's not the right word, but of these people that can consistently be unapologetically themselves because I'm someone who is occasionally mm. unapologetically themselves. <laughs> but for the most part, just he's and whores around the edges and it's like, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> I'm kind of me, but sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you get, but if yeah. you don't like it, I can just be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> I can go away. <laughs> I'd tell me to fuck off too. <laughs> um, I'd say over the ensuing decades past this time in my life, I became more and more unapologetically myself. And how, how did you get there? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think it's finding people who like you for yourself that then makes you... And it's, look, it's probably sad that I'd need outside validation to feel comfortable with being myself, but that's just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. So I was always so surprised when people liked me. I'm like, oh, you like me. What's wrong with you? But, but the, the more and more that I went along and, and found people who thought I was great just as myself, the more I was reassured that, you know, I actually was okay. Mm-hmm. So I was undiagnosed neurodivergent and so there's always been this real like rift and disconnect with me and then other people like I've always felt this sort of vast chasm between me and other people and I never knew why until I was diagnosed um at 36 Um. and finally I had some sort of answers as to why I've always felt a bit out of place and like I not fit in knowing that has really helped me to sort of accept myself and given me some explanations as to why I'm a bit odd. <laughs> and so you might have to like talk to me like I'm stupid and sorry if I'm asking questions or uh, things that people should know. When you're talking about that distance, do you mean that that like almost connecting but not quite making sense to yeah, other people? Yeah, I guess there's a... Everyone's always thought I was very strange. I have an odd manner and... I've always just been the weird person, like, oh, she's weird. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never understood why I was weird. I just thought I was regular. But everyone would be like, you're so weird. And so I eventually interpret that to mean, like, there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And not only do I have the neurodivergence acting as somewhat of a barrier between me and other people, I then have people's impressions of me being a weirdo as another barrier between me and them. So... Is it their barrier because they're perceiving you as a weirdo or is it your barrier because you think that they're perceiving you as a weirdo and then it's also modifying your behaviour but you're getting it wrong? Yeah, it it feeds into each other. Okay. Yeah, it's a cycle that feeds itself. Um, So at the time, because I'd spent so long sort of undiagnosed and not understanding what the hell was wrong with me, by that point I was very sick Mm -hmm. and very mentally ill. 
I was living like as a raw nerve and I was so tender and just constantly having meltdowns and sensory issues and sensory overwhelm and I didn't understand it. So I was like a baby just reacting to stimuli that was threatening at all times and that made me, I guess, even more weird (laughs) to Mm, other people. mm, mm, It mm. made me reactive and it made me emotional and it made me seem out of control to other people really. Does it also then make you embrace things that are stimulating? Yes, yes. So I have ADHD and uh, I'm always seeking stimulation. Mm -hmm. My brain craves novelty and, yeah, stimulation. And so you can get that from all kinds of places. And at the time I decided to get that from drugs. Um, So I fell pretty heavily into, like, the Sydney party scene But after a while, the party scene sort of became me on my own at three in the morning. (laughs) Uh, We all know how that story goes. Yeah. So how do we segue from this back to... How did we get here, by the way? (laughs) I don't know. I think we were talking about feeling odd and feeling weird. Um, And being unapologetically yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I think it takes a lot of time, especially when you're as weird Mm. as I am. I guess it takes a a lot of time and like a lot of therapy <laughs> to get comfortable with who you are. And and going back to that point you were making about the external validation, I think that it's not always just the external validation in itself. It's having that opportunity to practice your weirdness or step into your weirdness in a safe space that's created by those people that are validating you. Yes. Mm. And I mean, and this sort of comes back to, to Club Kooky because... I mean, as the name suggests, it's full of pooks. <laughs> or so it seemed to be. Like uh, I remember walking in and thinking, wow, this place is full of weirdos. And um, that was a nice feeling. So then let's talk about that. So walking in, it was a nice feeling. Was it a bit weird? <laughs> That's a bad describe. Was it a bit weird? Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> so... It was like the first time I went to Newtown and Mm -hmm. walked around and was like, this is a place full of weirdos. The first time I went to Club Kooky, well, the only time I went to Club Kooky, I walked in and I thought, this place is full of weirdos. And that, like, delighted me. And even standing in the line to get in, um, that line was full of weirdos. So I don't think we waited for very long. This is a very long time ago, but I don't think we waited very long. But even before we entered, I knew that this was something different. Um, Before that, I'd only been to clubs in my sort of small area that I lived in, which were all very standard and normal and were full of, like, screaming banshee women getting drunk off, you know. uh, Is that misogynistic to say that? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. It makes me feel less bad about, I was going to say bogans, but... (laughs) That too, that too. (laughs) Do we need to explain what bogans are? I'm not really sure I would be able to explain. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd be able, like, you know it when you see it. (laughs) It's indescribable. And there's a mullet involved, but not in a cool way. Yes, yeah, no, and it's a (laughs) non-ironic mullet. It's a mullet of intention. (laughs) It's a way of life, right, yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah. So you'd been used to going to clubs where there was, like, 
top 40 kind of music and people were there with this sole purpose mm. of getting drunk and making out with someone. Yeah, extremely heterosexual clubs in a not necessarily small town but like a medium-sized town. Mm. Um, like it was big enough to have clubs yeah. but not big enough for those clubs to be good Diverse. in any sort of yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then mm. so standing in this queue, you said you just knew that they were all freaks. Oh, I don't think you said freaks. Yes. Weirdos. No, I, I knew that they were all weirdos. So was it the visual clues that made you... Yeah, yeah, there were people in all sorts of different wacky ensembles and that's like the first indicator it's like your first sort of visual cue that you're in for something weird. Um, so what kind of things were they wearing? I can remember I can remember a woman with a shaved head wearing a big fluffy coat that was sort of multicolored, which was sort of like the first visual indicator mm-hmm. that things were about to get different. But there were the nice thing about Kuki was that there were all sorts of people there. There were like Obviously, queer people, like like queer dressing coded people. There were beautiful pixie people, like I guess you'd call them like hippies or doofers. Do you know what a doof is? What I I think of it as people who listen to doof music, like doof doof doof. But that's maybe wrong. Yeah, doofers are like people who go to improvised rave parties in the bush, and they're kind of like a amalgamation of hippies and ravers and weirdos sort of smushed together. So there were some doofers and there were ravers and there were some people in drag and goths. So all my favourite kinds of people. Mm. And that was a really nice thing about Kooky is that it wasn't um, it wasn't just one kind of person. Yeah, There were yeah. just a lot of different kinds of people and I kind of liked that. Like that was sort of a good indication that, this is a really accepting place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where a lot of different kinds of people could feel comfortable, which was, you know, that's a good sign. It's a green flag. Yeah, and when people are like different ages and different backgrounds and but they can all come together. Yeah, there, there definitely was like a, a variety of ages um, and a variety of styles. It wasn't a homogenous crowd, which was really cool. Mm. And and then going in and feeling like, oh, wow, this is really exciting. What transpired? Well, if we want to, if we want to scale back a little bit to like before we went out, my flatmate decided, like asked me if I wanted to go to the club and decided that, that they would dress me. Um, <laughs> oh, this doesn't end well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he dressed me in these shiny red pants that I had that were I thought were so cool. Very 2001, oh, if you can imagine. Like faux leather. Yes, exactly. But faux leather in the way that it was sort of like a shiny polished cotton, if that makes sense, <laughs> or shiny polished denim. They were really oh. awful. And they were like a really deep red and put me into a pink and red top that was a front of a top, like a standard normal human top, and then the back was all strings. Um, so that was, as was the fashion at the time. Oh, yeah, amazing. It was very 2001 outfit. And so then they did my makeup and powdered my face really white and did big, like, dramatic red and black eye makeup. 
Uh, and the most, the silliest part of it all is um, they dyed my hair pink. They bleached it and dyed it. Oh. And at the time I really loved the process of getting ready to go out. Like that was almost as much of a celebration as going out. Mm-hmm. So allowing my flatmate to, to do all of these things sort of felt like an extension of the night and it sort of built the night up. But wait, you knew this person a week mm. and you trusted them <laughs> with your hair. I knew this person, I think, four days, five oh, days. wow. Oh, look, I didn't think things through. Um, and the funniest part was that I had that photo shoot the next day <gasps> and so they hadn't agreed to shoot me with with pink hair. It was like pinky, reddy coloured hair. And so the next day after I got home from the club and before the photo shoot, I had to dye my hair back to brown. Your poor scalp. Mm. I know. (laughs) So this is just kind of an indicator of the sort of um, irresponsible, uh, no, like, constant present that I lived in, that I didn't Mm. have that forethought to say, please don't bleach my hair and dye it pinky red. I thought that that was a great idea. But you did have the forethought to dye it back to brown before you went to the photo shoot, so there's that. Exactly. So it's <laughs> fine, basically. Um, but the really cool part of that was walking down the street with my flatmate who was in, I can't remember exactly what they were wearing, but it was like a similarly over-the-top kind of outfit. And so walking down the street to the station, everybody was looking at us, but not in a negative way. Mm. They were looking at us and, like, smiling and, you know, I think someone called out, like, I love your hair, sis. And my flatmate was so confident that I couldn't help but also feel confident myself. Mm. And I'd previously drawn a lot of attention to myself in a negative way from bullies. I sort of stuck out like a sore thumb because I wasn't able to mask my weirdness. But walking down the street with, with my flatmate, yeah, I felt very confident and, like, like myself and that that wasn't a bad thing for once. Mm. I was feeding confidence from somebody else who had a lot of confidence in themselves and who was also a gigantic weirdo but was totally fine with that. Yeah. And that was, like, admirable. So they had chosen an outfit that you didn't feel like a total idiot in. No, I the only I reason amazing. I say that is because you know sometimes when someone wants to dress you, they put you in something and you're like, this does not feel like me. What am I going to do? No. Well, I mean, they dressed me in my own clothes, so that helped to begin with. But, no, I felt amazing. Mm. I felt so cool. Um, the way that you can only feel so cool in shiny red pants and a string top in 2001. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, thought, I thought I was the shit. I, I felt really confident and really good about myself. So then you didn't tentatively walk into the club. You stormed into the club, right? I wouldn't say I stormed, but I did, like, I entered. And I don't know, sometimes when you, like, enter in a new environment, like, you shrink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or feel apprehensive or but yeah I didn't shrink I arrived gosh trying to remember that feeling of just being like yeah I am the shit and I am here right I'm here don't worry everybody I'm here (laughs) the party can begin (laughs) 
which is interesting because I didn't know a single soul there, aside from my flatmate, who I also really didn't know that well. But um, that was okay. Mm. I didn't feel apprehensive in any way. When you walk into a club that you can so obviously see is full of oddballs and you're an oddball, yeah, you can't help but feel like you've arrived. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And then so, so what happened that evening? So I'm pretty sure I was on drugs because at the time I was always on drugs. Drugs were a really huge part of the Sydney party scene. So it was a, a big part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of introduction to the Sydney party drug scene was the start of something that, like, ended up going way too far. Um, but this was still in the fun period. And, and there's a really distinct difference between partying and being a drug addict. Mm. And it's very easy to slip from one into the other. And I, I think it's just I had a lot of friends who got very much into the party scene in Sydney and took a lot of drugs and ended up in bad places because of it. But it started out initially as fun. Mm. And, but, and so in relation to you at this time, like did you start taking drugs when you moved to Sydney or had you been taking drugs when you were back in your town? So i have been dabbling in drugs beforehand. Mm-hmm. Like uh, in high school I started dabbling with drugs Um speed was it was a whole thing um (laughs) but when I moved to Sydney things did definitely get out of control pretty quickly and that started with just partying and sort Mm. of going to clubs and like uh but then it progressed into into something that was very different and was something that sort of held me for a few years Mm. but at this point it was fun it was a fun good happy time and that's the whole thing about partying is that it's always a fun, good, happy time in the beginning and then, like, as time goes on, it becomes less of a party and less of a good time. Mm. And that whole thing about it, you know, it's fun until it's not. It's hard to know when you're in the period when it's not or to recognise that you're there. Yeah, when it starts switching to not, to not being great. It's really difficult to sort of tell and that comes up and happens really slowly and then happens really fast. Yeah. It became an essential part of going out and Mm -hmm. then it became a question of is it going out or is it the drugs? Like what am I seeking here? Yeah. Am I going out just so I can take drugs or am I taking drugs to go out? Mm. Mm -hmm. As an excuse for my drug use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But but this, Mm -hmm. you know, this is just the beginning and what was the moment for you? Hmm. I, I realised probably even before this that I was going to have a terrible problem with drugs because not only did I like doing drugs to party, I liked doing drugs alone. And that's when you know that it's not as great. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's, that's not fun. <laughs> I, was just, I was such a strange child. As a teenager, I kind of knew that this was going to be a problem for me. And it was. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. It's like the first time I ever tried certain drugs, it felt like climbing to the top of a mountain and being like, yes, like finally. And that's like to look back and realise that you were having feelings like that when you were 17, you know, that's, that's sad. <laughs> it's not great. Why is that sad? Because I had never felt like I fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how do I phrase this? It felt really sad because I only felt good about myself and who I was if I was on drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so like, it's just so difficult because the, the club scene was so intertwined with drug use that it's really hard to, to sort of talk about partying at that time and this experience without acknowledging the, the effect that drugs had on it. Because you had those problems with drugs, does that make it harder for you to look back on this time? Yes and no. Like, it, it's bittersweet because I had such a wonderful time, but also knowing that this was sort of the beginning of mm-hmm. a period that then became pretty bleak and dark. But it started out so shiny and beautiful. Mm-hmm. I remember, I, like, I, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember what drugs I took this night, but I know I was definitely on drugs because I was always on drugs at this point. Um, <laughs> but I remember feeling very like airy and floaty and ethereal and like that sort of way that the mixture of drugs and music can make you ascend to a different level of Mm -hmm. whatever consciousness. Um, (laughs) More air quotes there, listener. Yeah, consciousness. So yeah, there's definitely like an aspect of that when I remember this particular night in that I was, I was real high. (laughs) I was real high. Um, And that, was part of what made the experience so beautiful, Mm -hmm. but also was part of what made the experience like, like it's sad that, that it couldn't just be beautiful on its own. Is couldn't the right word there? Um, you know, I think it would have been as beautiful without drugs, but the person that I was probably wouldn't have allowed for that. Mm -hmm. Um, there was no other option. Like, of course you wouldn't go out sober. Like, <laughs> uh, that was just the attitude of, of the scene at the time. Um, it was fun and it was a party, but at the same time, it was also not always a party. And, yeah, and could switch quite quickly during the night. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So then, was it, so we got here because we were talking about you entering the club and being like, hello, everyone. Mm. Check me out. And, and then I was like, what else yeah. happened that evening? One thing that I really like sticks out in my head. So when I walked in, there was a guy on the dance floor who was wearing like all white. I think it was like a painter's coverall, <laughs> like a white. Like dungarees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was like splashed and slashed with like fluorescent paint all over it and so and I think that was obviously a black light because he was glowing and that was very exciting um and he was sort of like flailing around the dance floor. and he wasn't the only person on the dance floor but there weren't like heaps of people on the dance floor yet so there was this very enthusiastic white and fluorescent glowing dervish at the center of the dance floor and that was sort of the first thing that I saw. And it was a bit like, whoa. <laughs> um, and I remember, like, joining the dance floor and everyone was, sort of, like, chatting and dancing and sharing drugs. And, like, I can remember this one point where I was dancing and it felt like sort of everyone was dancing in a big circle around me. And I felt like everybody just loved me and... <laughs> 
that like I belonged there and that I was accepted and maybe it was the drugs but like maybe it was also the truth I don't know and does it matter yeah does it mm. um the thing that was the nicest thing about Kuki was previously because I at the time like identified as bisexual I always felt like I wasn't gay enough for the gay spaces and I wasn't straight enough for the straight spaces. And that was just kind of another way that I didn't fit in. Like even amongst this community of like what would be considered not outcasts, but Mm -hmm. other marginalized people, that was like a way I didn't fit in with them as well. But Kooky, I realize now was a queer space before I had that language and, like, that connotation of what queer meant as opposed to it being, like, a gay space, Mm -hmm. as opposed to everything falling into these binaries of gay and straight. And before I even had the language to say that this is a queer space, I didn't even know what queer was. But I felt like at Kooky it didn't matter that I was bisexual because Kooky was more a place for weirdos like, or queerdos, and that was me. <laughs> yeah, going back to that conversation we had earlier about the homogeny of some spaces, that's definitely true of the gay scene at that time, right? Mm. It's sort of this narrative of being a queer kid and then, like, moving to the city and finding your community. But back then, the communities felt very binary Mm. and so I had this impression that I would find my community when I moved to the big city and then got there and realized that it was kind of just another place where I didn't fit in Mm. so that's why it was really nice to have an experience like going to Kuki in the first five days (laughs) that I lived out of home Because it sort of gave me like a, like, hey, like not all spaces are binary, like not all spaces are one or the other. And I've been really struggling with being bisexual um, to that point. Like in in high school, it was just very confusing. Like one minute I'd be like, I'm gay. And then I'd be like, no, I'm straight. And then I'd be like, no, I'm gay. And it it took me a really long time to realise that I didn't have to be either. I could be in between Mm -hmm. because there just wasn't that, like I'd never seen anybody like me. Um, And is that because you didn't know about, like, the concept of bisexuality or is it because you just hadn't made that leap in your brain? Yeah, I think it was that it was really hard for me to make that leap in in my brain because everyone around me was either gay or straight Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the time. Everybody sort of fell into that binary and I didn't. And so I I always, like, kept oscillating between the two, like, gay and straight Um. Like, uh, yeah, it took me it took me a really long time to realise that I could, didn't have to be either mm-hmm. or I could be both or I could be all. <laughs> Everything, whatever I want to be that day. Right, exactly. Well, okay, so I'm going to take us back to the beginning of the conversation where you said mm. that going there was helpful but not transformative. Mm. I feel like if I had let it be a transformative experience, I probably would have gone back and I probably would have embraced that community and tried to, like, integrate myself into it. Mm. So while it was, like, a really beautiful experience and I felt really accepted and, like, I was in a good space for people like me, 
I never went back. And I kind of don't know why, because it would have been really lovely. Like, and, and Kuki, Club Kuki ran for, I think it's like 23 years. So you had quite a few opportunities to go then. I really did. I really did. <laughs> um, so I had a lot of opportunities to go back to it and I just didn't. And I don't know why. It's because I'm always acting against my best interests. I think I probably really would have had an opportunity to find like a little community there. And I just didn't. I don't know why. Well, I don't know. When we're young, we make stupid choices sometimes. Uh, you don't have to be young. So, yeah, so this thing that, like, this transformative helpful thing, let's stick on here. So, well, and maybe this isn't related to this at all. What did being in that space teach you about yourself? I think just watching older people feel comfortable being themselves was very helpful to me in feeling comfortable about myself and knowing that there were probably places in life that I would fit in because I'd like been to one mm. even just for five hours on a Thursday night and Friday morning. <laughs> and so in that way it was helpful. Like it was one of the many steps that it took to get me to a place where I was comfortable with being myself and like just unapologetically myself. I mean it didn't happen overnight <laughs> but that experience like going out that early into my living away from home experience and going to a place like Club Kooky was like a brick in the wall of me eventually getting to a point where I felt comfortable with being a weirdo and being different. Do you have any memories of Club Kooky or clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, it's about time you got in touch, don't you think? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories, and I need your help. Go to lostspacespodcast.com and find the section, Share a Lost Space, to tell me all about what it is you got up to and with whom. Who, whom, who, whom. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Marley by visiting her website, marleyjaneward.com. And if you enjoy a little bit of dystopian fiction, you know, some light reading, check out her young adult award-winning Orphan Corp series. And I will make sure to include a link in the show notes for this program. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on your podcast platform, or just told other people who you think might get a kick out of listening. My name is Kay Anderson and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs> <laughs>